الحمد لله الحمد لله وكفى والصلاه والسلام على عباده الذين اصطفى اما بعد فاعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم من المؤمنين رجال صدقوا ما عاهدوا الله عليه فمنهم من قضى نحبه ومنهم من ينتظر وما بدلوا تبديلا صدق الله العظيم most respected on my kiram brothers and elders as Paula mentioned after the maghrib salah <coughs> that we will be discussing a very great personality of our recent past and the purpose of discussing these personalities is for no other reason but to inspire ourselves inshallah to be able to try and move in a similar manner with some courage to serve the cause of deen to bring deen in our own lives and really this is something that we will see very very glaring in these people's lives the courage they had the perseverance the determination in the face of all kinds of odds and many a times we don't realize that it is the sacrifices that these great personalities made due to which we are enjoying a great amount of progress in our deen in terms of deen in this country so in that regard we are even indebted to them to know about them as a kind of gratitude for their sacrifices so the personality that we would be discussing today is hazrat maula said hussein ahmad mandi rahmatullah alai he was a unique personality in the sense that he was a person who was at the forefront of all the various efforts of deen at one time which is not a very common thing on the one hand he was a muhaddis of the among the highest caliber of that time he was simultaneously a sheikh and spiritual mentor of thousands of people at the same time he was in the forefront of the social efforts social welfare and seeing to people's needs etc and he was right at the front lines of the jihad of the time against the oppressive british government so all these things and many other things simultaneously at one time one person was involved in and really this was a very remarkable and a unique feature in him that he had encompassed all this within himself so inshallah we will just barely get some glimpses it's not possible to really do any justice and besides even if it was possible in terms of time we don't have any ability to do any justice to this topic but nevertheless these are just glimpses that we will get from his illustrious life and one of the aspects that we need to bear in mind is that on the one hand obviously this is something that has been done and will continue to be done that is the discussion of the sirat of rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam the sahaba ikram and the various pious predecessors of the ummah but sometimes we need to get little bit 
into the lives of those who were closest to us in time. And we'll see the reflection of the seerat in them. We'll see the reflection of the lives of the sahaba in them. And we will, inshallah, then understand that this is not something that is not possible to imbibe within ourselves. Many a times this is the excuse shaitan puts in us, that the sahaba were somebody very great, but where we can compare ourselves anyway, obviously we can't. But in that statement, what is the, what is the attempt? The attempt is to write off that from ourselves. That, that is something beyond us. We can't even imagine getting close to it, so we mustn't even try to follow them. That is the shaitani waswasa that comes, that, well, I shouldn't even try to get anywhere close. We won't get to the dust of their shoes also. But they are still the personalities that we have to keep looking at and keep trying to follow. And if we look into the lives of these Akabir, we'll find the very, very clear reflection of their, of their lives, which makes it clear that there is no excuse. People have done it. They have imbibed these qualities of the Sahaba. Obviously, the, the difference in the stages will, is beyond our imagination. But they have imbibed those qualities. They've lived it. So therefore, it's within our capacity also to follow in those footsteps and also gain something. In order to truly appreciate the personality of Mawlana Sayyid Hussain Afanbani Rahmatullah it is necessary to go a little bit into history of the time. Without that, it is almost impossible that we will appreciate the efforts and the service that he has made. The history of the time will take us to the history of the British rule in India. And to understand the British rule, this is very important from many aspects. Generally, there's a lot of admiration for the West in general. And when we talk about the West, by and large, the Western direction is directed by certain particular powers, we may call them. And the British are at the forefront of it. We should know where our admiration is and for who it is. What is the background? What they have done to the Muslims? And what they have done to Islam? And then we will realize that how misplaced our admiration is and how far away we should be from emulating these people or having any kind of uh, feelings in our heart in terms of that these people are very noble and somebody that we should be having sort of compassion for. Not in the sense that individuals, but meaning this concept, this government. In any case, coming to the issue of the British in India, the British, it was around the, in 1922, around that time. In fact, it was just at that time that this British empire had reached its peak. The colonization program, so many countries of the world they had colonized. Even South Africa was a colony. Kenya, New Zealand, the undivided India of the time. But this didn't happen just in a very, very nice way, very cordial manner. It was done in a very ruthless and brutal manner. Just since we are sitting in South Africa, just to understand one point in South Africa itself, that they had, when they came in, it was around 1899 to 1902, that was the time when the Anglo-Boer War took place. They had imprisoned approximately more than half the, 
about a quarter of the Boer population was, were put into concentration camps. 10% of them died. Out of that were 22,000 women and children perished in these camps. This was just one aspect in South Africa. What happened in Kenya, what happened elsewhere, that's another whole story on its own. But we are concentrating on India since we are talking about Mawlana Hussein Ahmad Bandi Rahmatullah So the same thing that happened in India when they came in, this was started off around the 1600s. They came in under the name of the East India Company, under the guise of just coming to do business. They set up bases in certain cities, Calcutta, Bombay, Surat, etc. And from here they started their mission. As time went, in the time of Alamgir Rahmatullah, who was the king of India at that time, subsequent to Jahangir, Jahangir allowed them to come in, he didn't realize what the agenda is. They started really showing what their true colors are. And he was trying to keep this in check. Eventually after Jahangir passed away, they succeeded in trying to, so to say, run over India by expanding the so-called business program, but in the process they colonized the country. And in this way, they completely took over the country and began their suppression and their looting. Prior to the British coming to India, the amount of wealth there was in India can be understood just from this. When Alamgir Rahmatullah became the ruler, he immediately first ordered that an audit of two treasuries only happened. Treasury in Agra and in Delhi. Only two treasuries of this whole vast country. We're talking about the undivided India of that time. That included Pakistan, that included Bangladesh. Just these two countries to do the audit now, it was all gold and silver coins that needed to be weighed. And so it was not the kind of audit of this time. It was a more manual audit. And there was these things need to be weighed and counted. They employed a few thousand people to conduct this audit. And after six months, Allah knows best how big those treasuries were, they realized that they've still, when, now you want to know what's happening, what's the progress? He said, well, you've now done like about one corner. They've only counted one corner, a few thousand people in these two places, daily working at doing this audit to count, and they had only finished off the audit of one corner of each of the treasuries. He said, enough now, we don't have to count more now. What are you going to do about it? But by the time the British left India, it was a poverty-stricken and destitute country. They looted the country, took everything away, even the, what is part of their so-called crown jewels, the Kohinoor diamond is part of it, which they stole from India and went, which hasn't been returned up to this day. But this was one part of it, this damage that they did to the country and as a result they made the people really suffer economically they looted the countries obviously people were now poverty stricken the, the expertise people had in terms of skills, various fields that they were at the forefront of the, all the things collapsed, the structures collapsed so there is no more people being produced to run all these things and as a result, there was this general dejection and kind of hopelessness that people felt around. But that was the smaller part of the damage. The main target of their whole agenda was 
to totally eradicate Islam and the Muslims. This was their main agenda. And this is the reason why when, as the British, this colonization program moved on and it became apparent what's going on, Hazrat Shah Abdul Aziz in his time he then issued the fatwa that India is no more a Muslim country, it's Darul Harb and it is now compulsory to wage jihad against the British. And he, after passing this fatwa, great luminaries of the time, Hazrat Shaykh Ahmad Shaheed Rahmatullah Shah Ismail Shaheed Rahmatullah they took up this task and they waged war against the British. But unfortunately, they were outnumbered, the resources were very limited, whatever else, whatever Allah would obviously is what happened. But they did not manage to oust the British out of the country. They were defeated on the battlefield, on the ground. And as a result, this was quelled. This happened in 1831. Subsequent to that, 1857 came. The great luminaries of the time, they took up this task again. There was another mass revolt against the British. And at that time, under the leadership of Hazrat Haji Imdadullah Muhajir Makki, the great luminaries of that time, Hazrat Nanotwi, Hazrat Maha Rashid Ahmad Gangoi, took up arms and in the front of the battlefield, they were in the front lines. But unfortunately, again, these battles that took place at Shamli and various other fronts, they did not succeed and these people had to leave their positions from there and move on. Hazrat Hajim Dalla was forced to migrate to Makkah Mukarramah. But in this situation, the ulama decided now that what's the next step? What has to be done? Because what subsequently happened after this uprising of Shamli was quelled by the British government, now they decided to find out, but what's going on? Where did this really start from? So they did their investigations and their reports, the reports were given to them. And the summary of the reports that came, one of the leading historians of, their, of the time, some Dr. William Yur, he submitted his report. And his report stated simply this, among many things, one of the main aspects, that it was mainly the Muslims that were at the forefront of trying to oust the British, because obviously the Islam was being suppressed. Islam, they were making an effort to eradicate Islam, to kill the Muslims off, apart from having looted the whole country and making everybody suffer. So now he's saying that it was the spirit of the Muslims. The rest of the people who also participated, the Hindus and who else, they just tagged along. It was mainly the Muslims. And the Muslims at the forefront were the ulama of the time, if you want to really succeed, there's two things you have to do. This is their report coming to them. You have to eradicate the ulama, eradicate the Quran. On this report, now they probably had no idea of what the reality is. They started collecting the copies of the Quran Sharif wherever they could lay their hands on. In Masajid, in wherever. To the extent that they collected and Allah forbid destroyed 300,000 copies of the Quran Sharif. These are the people we sometimes look at in awe at and in admiration. But this is what they've done. 300,000 copies of the Quran Sharif. And according to some, this only stopped 
when once somebody realizes what their agenda is, what they are up to, and why they are doing this, so he, some senior ranking officer, whoever it was, he brought one child to him and came. And he said, Look, you are trying to eradicate the Quran Sharif, first listen to this child. What do you mean listen to him? He says, ask him to read anywhere. Bring somebody and ask him to tell him to read from anywhere in the Quran Sharif. And when he realized after whatever they had to try and do to ascertain this, that this child is a hafiz of the Quran Sharif from cover to cover, and there's not one, there's thousands like him. That's when they realized that this will never happen. Allah Ta'ala has already spelt it out in the Quran Sharif that Allah Ta'ala is the muhafiz and the protector of the Quran Sharif. Who can destroy it? In any case, this plan failed. They knew that this will never, they realized this will never happen. But they continued on their scheme and plan to eradicate the ulama. After this uprising of 1857, when they now quelled this, now they were trying to get control of everything, they started massacring people left, right and center. 200,000 people were martyred. Out of this 200,000, more than 52,000 were ulama ikram. And their own historians, their own reporters, their writings have it. There was one person, some Thompson, in his memoirs, he was a person present on the ground in India at the time. And he writes that from 1864 to 1867, these were the three years when the British government decided that the ulama must be eradicated. He says from what is known as Chandi Chowk in Delhi, he says from there all the way to a place known as Khaybar Pass, see a distance of almost 800 kilometers, talking of a distance beyond from here to Johannesburg, 800 kilometers, he says that barely there was any tree on this entire distance that was spared the neck of an alim. In other words, there was not a single tree left where some alim was not hanged to death. He says in the Jami Masjid of Lahore, in the courtyard, there was a makeshift gallows that was set up there. Daily up to 80 ulama were being hanged on this gallows just in that courtyard alone. One of this Thompson, in one of his places he writes, he says that one day he stepped out of his camp in Delhi. He was based in some camp there. He stepped out of that camp in Delhi. And there was a huge fire that was lit up. And then he sees there's a group of 40 ulama being brought. And they were thrown, their clothes were removed and they were thrown into this fire. They burned to death. He says, in front of my eyes, now this is not somebody else writing, it's their own person writing. He says, in front of my eyes, I saw this happening. He says, then a second group was brought. These ulama were told, you saw what happened to the first group. If you want to save yourself from that, then all you do is you say that we had nothing to do with the 1857 uprising. We weren't part of it and we weren't in agreement with it. You say, this much will leave you. He says, but not one of them agreed to say it. And all of them were also thrown in that fire. He says, in front of my eyes they burned. And he says, then a third group was brought. And the same thing happened. And a fourth group was brought. And the same thing happened. This was the kind of brutality with which they tried to quell this. And in this manner, more than 52,000 ulama were martyred in this time.
In any case, after all this happened, the ulama sat down to think now, what's the way forward? Because what happened as a result, all these structures, the infrastructure began to collapse. There was nobody to lead the salah in the masajid. The social structures which the ulama were leading, were heading, that began. People were not to be found anywhere to serve the various departments of deen. And as a result, all these structures began to collapse, which were thriving at one time. But this became the result of all these issues that happened. So they sat down and after a lot of thinking and dua and then being divinely inspired, they sat down and decided that we have to start off this madrasa, this Darul Ulum, to recompense for the loss of 1857. In terms of producing people that would now again take up all the various departments of deen, they would serve the masajid, the madaris, they would serve the community in general, they would take care of all the various aspects of dini service because right now this has a, there is a drought of personalities, drought of people so as a result Darulum Deoban was established and this was its background and this was its inception the first student of Darulum Deoban was a Sheikh Al-Hind Hazrat Muhammad Hassan Deoban who we would just touch on his life a little bit here and there and this brings us to the personality of Sayyidina of Hazrat Muhammad Sayyid Hussain Ahmad Mandi that he was the special student of Shaykh Ulhind Shaykh Ulhind continued with the effort of trying to oust the British and after him Mawlana Mandi took it on upon himself to continue with the mission of his Ustad and this is what brings us to his personality to discuss this great person of his time so inshallah in the few minutes that we have this is just some glimpses of his life, just to understand, mashallah, what service he rendered to Deen and how we are indebted to him. Just in order to understand that how we sitting here in South Africa are indebted to him, it was in many instances we are indebted to him as a result that he is direct students. One is there are thousands of his indirect students that are all over the world. And in New Allah knows best how many in South Africa also, who either were the students of his students or maybe one more line down. But it was many of his direct students that moved on to many parts of the world to serve Deen. In our country, right in our close to us in Durban, Hazrat Mawla Abdul Haq Umar Jisabrahmatullah, who worked and served the Ummat at the time, the Ummat of Durban at the time, when there were hardly just a handful of ulama in the whole province. And the kind of effort and the kind of work that he did and the type of sacrifices that he made and in the challenges that he worked, really for us it would be very difficult to realize this, to understand it. But those who had been aware of it, who were present at that time, they would understand to what extent much of deen is alive because of these people's efforts. Had it not been for their sacrifices, for their efforts, Allah knows best where we would have been. We would have been just caught up in some just name of deen and some customary things and the spirit of deen would have long been lost. So he was a direct student of Hazrat Muhammad and like him there were a few others in the country. So we are very much indebted not just on a general level, on a more specific level that as Muslims of South Africa 
it was among his among the people and among the various other people that also played a very significant role it were there were people who were his direct students that came and brought the spirit of deen alive in south africa so any case coming to his life he was born in 1296 that is october 1879 he was a sayyid he was in the lineage of rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam which via the line of sayyidina hussein radhiyallahu ta'ala and that same spirit of sacrifice lived in him also he was born of very pious parents as far as his mother is concerned it is mentioned regarding her that she was very very particular of waking up early in the morning for tahajjud salah and from that time all the way till fajr and then till ishraq after fajr she would remain occupied in her tasbihat her zikr tilawat his father was also extremely pious person this is just something to highlight for ourselves that such pious parents then allah taala blessed them with this kind of a pious child as well the piety of the parents this impacts on the child we don't have time to go into this this is a topic on its own but just to t- touch on this in suratul kahf the incident of hazrat musa and khidr ali salatu wasalam is mentioned and then where they came past this one town the people refused to host them give them anything to eat despite them being travelers and having nothing eventually in any case as they were moving out this one wall was collapsing khidr ali salam sorted it out and he took nothing in return musa ali salam objected these people were so unhospitable they did nothing and you now just could have charged them a fee for this so in any case we just getting to the main point eventually he said look you go your way i go my way let me explain to you what happened but when it came to the aspect of the wall allah taala mentions in surah al-kahf ammal jidaru fa kana li ghulamayni yatimayni fil madina wa kana tahtahu kanzul lahuma beneath this wall was a treasure that belonged to two yatims two orphans and wa kana abuhuma saliha the father was a pious person the father was a pious person allah taala willed that this as a result of the piety of that father allah taala willed that this wealth of these orphans be protected because if this wall collapsed now they would not be able to take care of it others will usurp it so allah taala made this intizam this arrangement that a nabi of allah taala and khidr ali salam among the saints of the time allah taala sent them made the arrangement that they would pass by and they would fix it up and they would become the means of protecting this wealth wa kana abuhuma saliha allah taala says their father was a pious person the father was already deceased but the piety of the father became the protection of the children's wealth every father is working for his child so as the grandfather is working for his grandchildren and if somebody already has got great grandchildren he say i'm working for my great grandchildren but the real working for them is to instill piety in them and for ourselves to be on taqwa that will rub off onto them that will protect their dunya also it will bring deen in their lives it will protect their dunya also nevertheless moving on it was from the very early age just after he was 4 years old his parents already made him start taking some kind of basic deeni education and apart from the deeni education from a very young age he was trained to start being active in terms of serving in terms of being helpful they would have their goats whatever he used to be made to take it to pastor as well now this was a very important part of training unfortunately nowadays 
Our children are well trained in how to play computer games. And as far as being productive, being active in something of a beneficial nature for themselves, let alone for anybody else, Allah forbid that this is slowly dying out. Especially if it is not in a situation where everybody has to fend for himself and that youngster has to fend for himself also to earn his pocket money, then it will be just that nobody wants to do anything. This is something that is very detrimental for the long term. If from an early age that youngster is not, it's not part of his system, that he should be doing something constructive, something productive, later it's going to become a very, very difficult situation. Then it was in around 1309 after Hijri, he was 13 years old, he was enrolled in Darulam Deoband. He then spent his time in Darulam Deoband until graduation in such a way he stated that often he would spend the bulk of the night revising his kitabs and work and preparing for the next day and very often he slept about one hour a night. One hour for the whole night, the next day obviously the whole day is studies and work and sometimes when sleep would overpower him, he would make up a little cup of salty tea, very salty tea just to merely, not in order to enjoy the tea, to shake off the sleep so that he can continue learning. Now these people became these kind of great personalities, not just by chance. They put in that kind of effort. This was the background to their effort that they put. And in this way, he spent his time in there, learned and studied under the luminaries of the time, Hazrat Shaykh Ul-Hind, Mufti Azizur Rahman, and Mawla Khalil Ahmad Saharampuri, and many other great Asatis of the time. In any case, shortly after he graduated, his father had a burning desire to migrate to Medina Munawwara and pass away in Medina Munawwara. This was it, that he must try and get there, so that the day that his moth comes, he is in Medina Munawwara, and he is buried in that Mubarak ground. So he made this decision, and it wasn't like it is nowadays that a person wants to travel somewhere overseas, well, he just makes a booking and he carries on. This was a very difficult time and a very difficult decision to make, very difficult journey to undertake. And then with his entire family, all his children, any case finally, they did make this hijrain journey, and they came to Medina Munawwara. But it was not that they had all the resources in the world. When they got there, it was a very difficult situation. They were poverty stricken, and they had to do everything themselves, wash their own clothes, cook their own food, do all the menial chores themselves. Hazrat Madni Rahmatullahi was the eldest of the children and many a times he would undertake the cooking of the food for the family himself also because his mother was very ill. His father was occupied with his daily whatever in order to earn for the family something. So he would undertake all this. Then the amount of food that was available. Now these are all just the little glimpses from his life. The amount of food was very limited. That much was available to be cooked for the day. Now together with him, there were five siblings, there his parents. So everybody used to be given a portion. That's your portion. So that's the portion you eat and you got to survive, survive on that. And that portion was obviously something very little. So his youngest brother would very often, after a while he realized that this is it, after this nothing more. So very often he would now as soon as that portion is served to him, he would quickly eat up his portion. And he start crying for more. In the meantime, Madni was busy just maybe serving everybody. 
So he would take his portion and give it over to his youngest brother. And there were many times when he went to bed with a stone tied to his belly in emulation of Rasulullah This is what we said right at the beginning, that we'll see the reflection of the Sahaba in their lives. I mean, who can understand in this time and age that yes, this too happened. But out of that pangs of hunger, because that, that ithar, that ayat which was revealed regarding the Sahaba, yu'siruna ala anfusihim malawkana bihim khasasa, that they gave preference to others over themselves, though themselves they were in a state of poverty. The Sahabi who invited, who took along the guest of Rasulullah to his house, and then extinguished the candle and appeared to be eating. Meanwhile, they fed the guest and they went to bed hungry. We've heard the incident. It was on that occasion this ayat was revealed. That these people were starving themselves. But they gave preference to the guest. This kind of... This, this same reflection we find here. That that portion of his share, he gave it away to his younger brother. Because now he's a child and he's crying for more. There isn't more available. Let him eat it. And myself... Well, there's nothing, tie a stone now, the pangs of hunger are very severe. He tied a stone and went to sleep. This was the kind of difficulties that they underwent initially. They had to go all the way to the reservoirs, to full water in leather bags, carry those leather bags on their shoulders, bring it all the way on their backs, bring it all the way. These were all the kinds of difficulties that they had to undertake. But without any complaint, he undertook all this. Then, when he left India, he had already graduated at that time. His ustad, Sheikh Ulhind said to him, Whatever it is, you ensure you continue teaching. Even if you have one or two students only, you must continue teaching. So, when he came to Madina Munawara, he took this advice of his ustad to heart and he started teaching in the Haram Sharif in Madina Munawara. They were in the restrictions that are there nowadays. In any case, he had one or two students. And he started off teaching. But in time, what happened was, there were numerous halaqat and circles of ta'aleem taking place. Where some person is teaching hadith sharif, somebody is teaching something else, somebody is teaching something else, tafsir, etc. And there would be students in all these various groups. In a short time, the students began to flock into his group. Now He was a non-Arab coming from India. And there were the cream of the crop of that time, all teaching in the Haram Sharif. And gradually these students are flocking towards this Ajmi, towards this non-Arab. He says there were times when this huge circle of students were around him. Even the other Mashayikh would come and stand on the ends and they would listen in awe of how he's, the manner of explanation, how he's teaching. And in this way Allah Ta'ala blessed him with this great bounty that for 18 years he taught Hadith Sharif right in Madina Munawwara, right in the Haram Sharif, in front of the Rosa of Rasulullah This was this great, as we said right at the beginning, that in many senses he was unique. Allah Ta'ala blessed him with some very unique things. Among them was this one aspect. That coming hailing all the way from India, Allah Ta'ala blessed him with this opportunity and bounty. That in the Haram Sharif, in front of the Rosa Mubarak, Allah Ta'ala gave him this opportunity of teaching Hadith Sharif. He used to teach up to 14 lessons a day. 14 lessons a day, each lesson spanning maybe whatever it was, 45 minutes to 1 hour. He would start off from after Fajr till almost Zohar. Between Zohar and Asr he would teach 2-3 lessons. Between Asr and Maghrib he was teaching. After Maghrib to Isha he was teaching. After Isha he still had one more lesson. Then he would go home 
and he would be preparing the lessons for the next day. So at average he would sleep about two hours a night. Now, this was the kind of dedication with which he served deen, with which he served the knowledge of deen, and in this way he had been spending his time in Medina Munawwara. On this note, while teaching Hadith Sharif in, in Medina Sharif, in the initial stages, this was while it was still early days that they were there, he had just commenced teaching, and this was obviously, there was no remuneration for this, he wasn't employed by anybody, he was teaching on his own. There were times when his father now was trying to, after a little bit of getting things together, trying to build the family home. Because now they were in a hard-pressed situation. So he was trying somehow to build the family home. So he had employed some few people, laborers. So sometimes he would suddenly out of the blue send a message to Hazrat Madni Rahmatullahi via somebody. He probably at that time wasn't even aware that right now what he's busy with. The person would come with the message while he is busy in a lesson. And he would say, your father has sent this message. What the message is? That the laborers didn't come today. You need to come and help to mix the cement and start with the building. He would, without saying anything in detail to the students, he would just say that there's something that I have to attend to urgently. So he would postpone the class. He would go and assist his father to do what was necessary there, complete that and come back without a single word of any irritation, without making any kind of indication also that he is irritated in some way about this, he would regard it as his duty that his father has called, and now he was not employed there by anybody, that he is now, uh, it's in work time or anything. This was his voluntary contribution here. He would go and fulfill that task and then come back and carry on teaching. This was the obedience and this is again the same qualities which the Quran and Sunnah teach us about. وَلَا تَقُلْ لَهُمَا أُفِّوا وَلَا تَنْهَرْهُمَا وَقُلْ لَهُمَا قَوْلًا كَرِيمًا Totally humbling oneself in front of one's parents, not being abrupt to them in any way, etc. This was part of his life. Then taking it further, while he was in Medina Munawwara in this time, in India his Ustad, the Shaykh Al-Hind Rahmatullah he was still together with whatever else was carrying on, he was still involved in this effort to try and oust the British. Because the British were now creating havoc. They were suppressing Islam, trying to eradicate Islam, trying to eradicate the Muslims. So this, what was called at that time, the Silken Cloth Movement, Reshmi Rumal. Because the plans of this, what they were trying to achieve, was all recorded on a silken cloth or wrapped in it. But somehow, and in order to try and get the support of the Ottoman uh, rulers of the time. Uh, Sheikh Hulin Rahmatullah traveled to Makkah Mukarramah to meet with them and discuss with them. That time, this, the Hijaz was also ruled by the Turks. But the governor of Makkah Mukarramah, whose name was Sharif Hussein at that time, he unfortunately was bought off by the British and he became a traitor. And he then had Sheikh Hulin Rahmatullah arrested and handed him over to the British. Now when this news broke out, that Shaykh Hulin Rahmatullah has been arrested, Hazrat Maddi Rahmatullah who was in Hijaz, he was based there, he came to know about this. As soon as he heard about this, he came immediately to that place at that police station, wherever that Shaykh Hulin Rahmatullah was arrested, and he came to hand himself in. So he said, what you came for? He says, well, my Ustad has been arrested. He's an elderly person and he is not 
in a position to do many things for himself because of his old age. So I am now handing myself in for arrest solely so that I can be in his service. He voluntarily handed himself in for arrest just for no other purpose but to be of khidmat to his ustad in prison. He was nevertheless taken in after many details involved but eventually they were moved over to what is known as the island of Malta. This is off 50 odd miles away. Very, very cold place. Severe. And this entire group of ulama were he had given himself in voluntarily for arrest. Why? So that he can serve his ustad. When they were brought onto this island of Malta, it was severely cold. There was no hot water available. So what he would do is in a skin bag, he would fill some water. The water was ice cold obviously. At night after Isha, he would take that water bag and place it on his thighs and he would crouch over it, putting his stomach onto it. And he would spend the bulk of the night in this way. Why? That by the time it will be tahajjud time, and Shaykh Ulin Rahmatullah his ustad would wake up for tahajjud salah, perhaps just the cold of the water would have now dissipated because of the body heat. And night in and night out, this is how he spent that night, when he handed himself in for khidmat, it wasn't the kind of thought that comes in our mind, the khidmat of this time. This was the khidmat. That he spent his night trying to just keep this water or bring it, forget making it hot, but just to take the cold out maybe. It might have just become slightly warm at the most. In this manner he served his ustah. After Shaykh Ulhin was released several years later, he said, I don't think my own son could have made the khidmat that Hazrat Muhammad Hussein Ahmad made of me. In that time, just as we said, we will just touch briefly on this great personality as well. Shaykh Ulhin when while they were imprisoned, it was a very, very difficult time. They had to undergo untold sacrifices, great hardship, and he was in hard labor. One day this rumor came around. The rumor came that they have been found guilty of treason and therefore they are going to be executed. Now this message came around into the prison. So there was a whole group of these ulama that were present with Sheikh Ulin They suddenly noticed after that day or later that Sheikh Ulin is sitting one side looking very worried, very grieved. So they were a little surprised. But then after a while when they noticed this is now going on, so they came around him. They said, but Hazrat, this message has come. But after all, this is what we came for. We wanted to give our life for the deen of Allah Ta'ala. It seems like, inshallah, this time has come now. So it was as if now they were consoling him that, look, don't take this too seriously. That's apparently what was in their minds. When he heard this, then he sighed. And he said, I also know that this is what we came for and I am also looking forward to that. My concern and worry is that now that this time is apparently in front of us, that now our lives will be taken, my concern and worry is, will it be accepted by Allah also? Will Allah Ta'ala accept this in his court? Now that person who worries about the acceptance of Allah Ta'ala, this is itself a sign of that ikhlas. That after all the sacrifices were given, 
he still worried that was it really for Allah Ta'ala? Whether it's the person who often somebody does it for some other motive, ulterior motives, that's the last thought comes in his mind, will he be accepted? But this is the caliber of the person. In a prison, Juma is not permissible inside a prison because there are various conditions for the validity of Juma. And one of it is that there must be free movement in, there mustn't be any restriction for people to be able to come there. So in any case, he would every Friday, every Friday take a ghusl, put on his clean clothes, apply itar, whatever was available, all the sunnats of Jumu'ah that were possible for him to fulfill. And then he would, in the Quran Sharif, Allah says, Fas'aw ila dhikrillah. Now you move towards the remembrance of Allah Ta'ala in this ayat referring to Jumu'ah. He would walk from the spot that he might have been on, wherever he was, his bed might have been or sitting wherever. He would walk to the door of the cell. He would come there, obviously you can't go any further. Then he would say, Ya Allah, I did what was in my capacity. Now it's up to you to open the doors for me or accept whatever it is. Friday in, Friday out, this was his mamul. Can we imagine we have the opportunity, Allah Ta'ala brings us to the masjid for Jumu'ah. But how much of care, how much of importance is this Mubarak day given to fulfill all the sunnats of Jumu'ah, to be in the masjid early, to be reciting Suratul Kahf, to excessively recite Durood Sharif on the day of Jumu'ah, and all the various a'mal of Jumu'ah. And this person didn't have, he knew there's no Jumu'ah for him. He would then return from the door of the cell and come and perform Zohar Salah. But because it was a day of Jumu'ah, this importance and this kind of respect for the Mubarak day. In any case, they spent much time in this prison in this manner. But eventually, after some years, they were released. When Azmaddin was imprisoned together with Hazrat Sheikh Hind in Malta, at that time when he left from his home, that his home was a house full of people. While he was imprisoned in Malta, his father passed away, his mother passed away, his wife passed away, and both his sons passed away. It was an empty house. Can we imagine a person left a house full of people? And when now he's going to return, he's going to return to an empty house, four walls, nobody inside. In any case, just coming to one other point, after this release from this island of Malta, Sheikh Ulhin when he was released as well, he came and there was a huge gathering and he said, on this, in this prison of Malta, I learned two lessons. And he was addressing a gathering of the ulama in particular. So I learned two lessons. All in front of him were his students and students of his students. And they were shocked that this Ustazul Asatiza, what he learned in this prison. So he said, I learned two lessons. And he said that I pondered very deeply over the downfall of the Muslims. What is the reason for their downfall? And I came to two issues. Identified two things. One was that they have abandoned the Quran Sharif generally. Whether it is the learning of the words of the Quran Sharif, whether it is understanding what the Quran Sharif wants from them, and practicing on the Quran Sharif, generally this has been abandoned. And he says, I therefore resolved that every effort has to be made to bring this alive. That is why in prison, with the limited resources, but the depth of knowledge Allah Ta'ala had blessed him, in prison he wrote the tarjuma of the Quran Sharif. And together with that, he took it as a mission of his now to establish makatib, primary makatib that will teach the Quran Sharif in his pristine manner in every nook and corner of India. 
And this is what he had started off as well. In his lifetime he had started this mission. Nevertheless, this was one aspect. He said that they have abandoned the Qur'an Sharif. He also started off the dars of the Qur'an Sharif in various masajid, explaining the meaning of some ayat daily, so that people become acquainted with the message of the Qur'an Sharif. And then the second thing, he said the second thing is obviously the infighting of the Muslims. These are the two things that have led to the downfall. And if you want to save ourselves from that same problem, we're going to have to do the same things that he has highlighted, bring the Qur'an Sharif alive, and come out of the infighting. And bring unity in terms of the usul. Yes, there are certain aspects, there would be various opinions in it, but provided that those opinions are within the limits of Shariat and Deen, then there is scope for that. When it comes from people who are experts in knowledge. Not from anyone and everyone. But apart from that, this is something extremely important. Then nevertheless, after the Shaykh Al-Hind passed away, again, this is all for our, nevertheless, just, which will be inshallah beneficial for us. After he passed away, just prior to his demise, he had sent Hazrat Madni on an errand, on some mission, which was related to the Makatib, establishing of Makatib somewhere. While Hazrat Madni was gone, he was in Calcutta, which is a, quite a distance away. Hazrat Sheikh Ulhind suddenly passed away in Deoban. While the ghusl was being given to him, they noticed on his back deep cuts, wounds, and they just couldn't understand what is this. And not one or two, the whole back was filled with this. Nobody could understand what this is all about. In any case, whatever had to be done was done. Hazmatni only arrived a day or two after because he only got the message very far away. By the time he travelled and came by train, so it only he only reached the next day or the day after. When he came, people asked him, that, "Do you have any answer for this? We only noticed this while we were giving ghusl to his body. What is all this about? What were all these wounds?" So when they asked him the question, he began crying, and he said, "In his lifetime." Because he had made us promise that we will never mention this, I couldn't talk about it in his lifetime. See, but while he was in prison, because he was the head, daily the British soldiers, this is why this is being mentioned again, to understand the brutality that was meted out. Daily they would take him and they would flog him. And by night when he would be brought back, because of those fresh wounds, he couldn't even sleep. He would be just tossing and turning in pain. And the next day they would take him again. And for days on end this would carry on. I see those were the wounds that he sustained. But this was the level of his ikhlas that he didn't want anybody to know about it. While he was alive, while he walked on the face of this earth, he made everybody promise whoever came to know, who was in the prison with them, that day you'd mention anything about this when we are released. That we do a small little bit, if we don't publicize it to the whole world, we won't be able to sleep. And if these people just heard something getting publicized, they can't sleep. This is how far the distance has come between us. And this is the reason why we have to know about these people's lives, know about their sacrifices, know about their ikhlas and sincerity, know about what kind of uh, mindset they had, so that we can try and emulate them in some way. And this is, as we said right at the beginning, the reflection of the Sahaba Ikram. That we can see this reflection just a century ago. Any case, some of the other aspects regarding his uh, after the Sheikh Ulhind passed away, he continued with this 
mission of his ustad and among the various things was besides the establishing of makatib he was at that time already then just a little while later he was appointed the head ustad of Darum Deoban and the Sheikhul Hadith as well and he also continued with the mission of trying to oust the British from India because this was something that had to be done the country had to be freed from these oppressors because apart from oppressing the people in general the agenda that the British had was to destroy Islam there were occasions when they tried to silence him many many occasions the British government tried to silence him they tried to silence him with force that failed many times they put him into prison then he would be released and he would be released and he would go back onto the same mission in public platforms he would express openly the tyranny of the British their oppression what they are up to what they are doing he would spell it out to the audience he would give details and with references of what kind of oppression they are doing where and how in any case this carried on they tried to silence him by force that didn't work they tried to silence him by bribery one person came one day and started talking in a very nice way first very general talk and then he said that I brought one gift for you the gift we're talking about that time now century ago 40,000 rupees 40,000 rupees almost a century ago 40,000 rupees in that time we can multiply that in perhaps more than a million now what is this for is it not just hadiya for you so he didn't take it still there and he said besides this every month you will get 5,500 rupees said okay for what he said, only for this you carry on doing whatever you want to do all that is required of you is that you don't speak against the British anything and you don't try to spur the people against the British government that's all nothing else you must just leave this one thing out nothing else and this 40,000 is here for you now every month you will receive 5,500 rupees when this person spelled out what his whole story was he virtually chased him out and he was also obviously he had his own needs as well some not long ago later a few months later he accepted a post to teach at 150 rupees a month 150 rupees a month what he was being offered 5500 rupees a month for what just to stop saying something not to say anything wrong also not that he must now distort something else all that he must do is just hold back from saying something in terms of not speaking against the British but that would have harmed Islam and the Muslims and at that time he regarded that as his responsibility to enlighten the people and make them aware that the British are out here to destroy Islam so for that they were trying to silence him with money but who with the wildest dreams they could imagine that this soldier of Islam would be silenced with money he chased them out from there and that didn't work for them either any case when he was appointed in Dalum Deoban as the Ustad at that time when he came in there were barely some 40 odd students in the final year he was appointed to teach Hadith Sharif before the end of that year it started off with 40 before the end of that very year there were already 200 and more students in that same class as they heard that Fadni Rahmatullah is teaching this was the Maqbuliyat and the Qabuliyat Allah Ta'ala blessed him with that as soon as they realized he has been now appointed as the Ustad here from all directions students began to come and join his class 
Here again, there was a very, very long schedule and a very busy day that he used to have. From morning till evening, he was being involved in teaching. Apart from that, he would be traveling the length and breadth of India, enlightening people on what is going on, what the British are up to, what is necessary for them, what they should be doing to protect their Islam, to protect their deen. And in this way, he would spend his days and nights. There were many times in order to take care of these journeys, because it was the need of the moment, he would have to travel in the day. He would finish off with a discourse somewhere. He would return from the discourse sometimes past midnight. As soon as he reached Deoban, the, the siren or whatever, the buzzer would be rung, the bell would be rung, and that meant that the students must now report for lessons. He had just come back from a very arduous journey the whole day, and at that time, past midnight, he would start teaching Bukhari Sharif. And in this way, this is the day and night that he had his work. As far as his selflessness is concerned, there were many times when rights would break out, especially after the partition of India and Pakistan, and where then the Muslims were being very, very badly persecuted in many places. And wherever there were Hindus dominating some place, they would now suddenly start pouncing on the Muslims. Whenever he heard something is happening, he went out personally. He would go out into the thick of those riots to go and rescue some Muslim person, where his life would be in danger. But he would not take note of that, what the risks are. There's a Muslim in danger, he would be in the thick of it to go and bring him out. There are so many things, there were times when, despite all this, there were attempts made to assassinate him, slanders were made against him. This is something that happens, unfortunately people, they hear one side of the story, they don't take the care to find out what is the reality. Now somebody just runs some rumor or makes some false allegations, and people run with it, and then people in their ignorance do all kinds of things. There were times when while he was traveling by train, etc., somebody realized it's him, but they were of a different thought, and different line. They came and started, somebody grabbed his topi and started stamping on it. Somebody started throwing some things on him. Somebody did, but not once he ever retaliated. And when others wanted to retaliate on his behalf, he stopped them. He said, leave them, they don't, they're not aware of what they are doing, they let it be. Among the things of his akhlaq and character, we are just touching on few points just to wrap up quickly. Once he was travelling by train, as he was travelling along, there was a Hindu sitting opposite. After a while, this Hindu person woke up to go to the toilet. But when he went to the toilet, he came back faster than he went. So it was obvious what the story was. So after a short while, Madni Rahmatullah quietly woke up. And he just did like he's looking out of the window or something. And then he quietly made himself his way into the toilet. Closed the door. After some time he came back. And he told that Hindu person sitting there. That uh, I think you want to go to the toilet. I went and checked up. It's clean. I perceived, no, he's in a, quite a state. You can't use it. He says, no, I checked up now. It's clean. Again, the thing to learn. He didn't come back to say, no, don't worry. I went and cleaned it. He didn't make any kind of claim for himself to try and... He says, I went and checked, maybe somebody else did it. He just gave that impression. I went and checked now, it's clean. He cleaned it for who? For this makhluk of Allah. It's also Allah's makhluk. What happens in the end, perhaps he might die on Iman, if he gets Iman or not, whatever, that's a separate issue. He's also Allah's makhluk. He was ready to humble himself in this manner for the khidmat of a person who perhaps hated him. But this is the kind of qualities Allah blessed him with. It is mentioned regarding his salah, his concentration, the manner, his manner of performing salah, 
He would perform a salah that people would just stand and marvel at. And his tahajjud, he was known, it was, he would wake up for his tahajjud and then after tahajjud for a long time he would be engaged in dua. And he said regarding that dua, that during that dua he would cry like as if a small little child, somebody was spanking that child, the child was screaming and crying. Meaning that dua was with such fervor that he would be wailing and crying like a little child. In fact, there are so many things that we are skipping. He, in this time, the kind of azam and determination that he had and the courage and sabr that Allah had blessed him with. His first wife passed away while he was in, before he was gone to Malta. Then he married again. While he was in Malta, the second wife passed away. Then he married again, the third wife passed away. He married for the fourth time. And in his lifetime, in her lifetime, then she passed away. He passed away in her lifetime. But in other words, three, and out of these marriages, the children, the, while he was in Malta, two of his sons passed away. The other marriage also, the children, two of them passed away. And in all this, he still remained very firm and steadfast on everything. He kept on digesting everything, taking everything. This just came on the note about his tahajjud salah and his crying in his dua. This was a general thing. He was very, very... Sheikh al-Hadith Mahazakir was very informal with him. They were very close. Sheikh Rahmatullah was his junior. But he was very informal. So he mentions that once he was his guest, Hazrat Madni was his guest. And as per his normal tartib, he woke up for tahajjud. And just was his normal habit or... He was pouring his heart out at the time of the Hajjud and really crying his heart out. So after his Hajjud was over, his dua was over, the Shaykh brought a cup of tea for him. But then because of the informality and he was just trying to lighten it up, so he whispered in his ears, don't cry so much, you'll get married again. Because it was already his third wife had passed away. So, but the, this, the lesson in this, that this is how these people, it was not just something that they were doing just on the surface of it. They were doing it with this taluk with Allah Ta'ala. Their nights, again that reflection of the Sahaba Ikram. Fursanam bin Nahar, Ruhbanam bin Layl wa Fursanam bin Nahar. Their days were out in the field, serving Allah Ta'ala and serving the deen of Allah Ta'ala. Serving the makhluk of Allah Ta'ala. And the nights connecting with Allah Ta'ala. When both these things were there, they became what they became. Among the many other things that were part of his life, there is hardly any time to go into the details. His hospitality, his Dastar Khan was open for anybody. Muslim, Hindu, anyone. At any given time, at one stage in his life, there would be 30 to 40 people on his Dastar Khan at every meal. And nobody would, it was not permissible for any of the khadims or attendants to turn anybody away. Once one person came, he just came, because probably everybody was now away, you want to come and have a free meal anytime. So one person came, he was very unkempt, very dirty, bad odor coming from him. Life actually falling out of his hair. But now nobody had the guts to turn him away because they knew day we turn anyone away. But when he came to sit there, whoever was there, they all moved out, left him sitting alone. Because they couldn't bear sitting next to him. But he wasn't there at that time. He came in a little while later. As soon as he came in, in one moment he sized up the situation. What happened here? As he walked towards his place, he called for this person. He said, you come with me and eat with me. He seated him with him and he ate with him out of that same plate. After eating, he helped him to wash his hands. And then he saw him off. In that time, that life from this person also came onto him. But with all that, he didn't make one indication that he was in any way 
upset about anything. Rather, after this person, he saw him off, he turned to the khadims and said to them, that don't ever look down upon anybody. We don't know what is somebody's taluk with Allah Ta'ala. And then he recited one portion of one hadith sharif, إِنَّ مِنْ عِبَادِ اللَّهِ مَنْ لَوْ أَقْسَمَ عَلَى اللَّهِ لَا أَبَرَّهُ Sometimes, whatever the person's situation is, why he's in that outward condition, Allah knows. It's not necessary that it's because of neglect. It could be because of desperation. We don't know. And sometimes there is somebody, he has such a link with Allah Ta'ala, that if he had to take a qasam, Allah Ta'ala will make it happen. In other words, by, now you can't take an oath about the future that by Allah this will happen. But if by chance he took such an oath, Allah Ta'ala will make it happen to keep him on his oath, that he doesn't break his oath. So this was the caliber of the person. His taqwa, his taqwa was of a very high caliber. Despite being at the forefront of the political field, even there his taqwa was the same as being on the stage of the of teaching Hadith Sharif in the Darulum Dioban. He didn't compromise Shariat anyway. He didn't compromise the Sunnah anyway. All fields were the same for him in this regard. And he was somebody that was steadfast in every part of, every aspect of life. Just prior to his demise, it was in fact the day before he passed away. One person, one of his students, he saw a dream. These dreams are mubasharat. These are glad tidings. Allah Ta'ala gives sometimes to a person directly, sometimes to others, for him. So this person in the night, he is dreaming that he is standing outside Hazrat Muhammadin's house. And while he's standing there, somebody dressed in white is suddenly coming to him and saying to him, just, just wait, Nabi Salaam is coming. And as he's standing, he sees Nabi Salaam coming, riding on a horse. And alongside is another empty horse coming. So he's asking this person who came to tell him the news that Nabi Salaam is coming. He's asking him, but why is Nabi Salaam coming with an empty horse as well? There's no rider on the second horse. So this person says to him, no, the other horse is for Hussein Ahmad Madni. This was the dream he saw at night. And as he woke up in the morning, just shortly thereafter, the news is there that Hazrat Madni has passed away. Allah Ta'ala granted this basharat and this glad tiding in this manner. One of the people who were in Deoban at the time was from Cape Town who passed away now, Mawlana Yusuf Karan Sahib, Rahmatullahi Alayhi. He had just reached Deoban a few months prior to that. He had gone to study. So he hadn't really studied as a student of Hazrat Madni Alayhi, but he had seen him and he perhaps sat in his company for a while or something. So he narrated that he had just been on, it was early in the morning, meaning early morning, mid-morning or something, and he was on his way to the post office to go and post a letter or whatever the case is. And while walking, suddenly the PA systems of the masjid, loudspeakers, suddenly this announcement started getting made about the demise of Hazrat Madni Rahmatullah So now he was out on the street at that time. And the bulk of the people out on the street, they were Muslims also, the bulk of them were Hindus. People walking, going on their own. But he says, as this announcement was made, it was like everybody stopped in their tracks. Everybody knew the personality, and everybody knew the sacrifices he made, obviously for Islam and the Muslims, for the country at large. He says that, let alone the Muslims, he says, I saw Hindus crying openly in the streets. He says, in any case, I somehow made my way to the post office. When I got to the post office, the postmaster who was a Hindu, he says, I came there, I see this person, he's sitting with his head in his hands, and he's sobbing like a baby, he couldn't serve me, I had to go away. This was the kind of effect it left on the people, because everybody appreciated what he had done, what sacrifices he underwent, 
Obviously, primarily it was for Islam and the Muslims. But at the same time, he simultaneously made the sacrifice to try and save everybody from the tyranny and the oppression of the British. Allah Ta'ala then, obviously this great personality was laid to rest in the Qabristan of Deoban. May Allah Ta'ala give us a tawfiq that we take these lessons from these Mubarak lives and we also get inspired in some way the least sacrifice. These people made these kind of sacrifices to keep deen alive, to remove the forces of evil that were trying to crush Islam and the Muslims. The least sacrifice that we can make and we can learn from these sacrifices to make is to at least sacrifice the haram out of our lives. At least sacrifice those obstacles that come in fulfilling the obligations of deen. Sacrifice this our sleep at the time of Fajr. Sacrifice all our occupations at the time of Zohar, Asar, Maghrib, Isha. Sacrifice the temptation to squander our wealth in just frivolous things and rather use that to uplift those who are downtrodden, to uplift those who are in dire circumstances throughout the world, our suffering Muslim brothers and sisters. Just to make those, that is the bare essential sacrifice which is really, if you think about it, really no sacrifice. These are things that should be part of our life. And over and above that, as much as we can, may Allah tabarak wa ta'ala give us a tawfiq وآخر دعوانا عن الحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم لك الحمد كله ولك الشكر كله اللهم لا نحصي فنعا عليك أنت كما أثنيت على نفسك جزا الله عنا نبينا محمدا صلى الله عليه وسلم بما هو أهله ربنا ولمنا أنفسنا وإن لم تغفر لنا وترحمنا لنكونن من الخاسرين اللهم افتح لنا بالخير واختم لنا بالخير واجعل أواقب أمورنا بالخير بيدك الخير إنك على كل شيء قدير اللهم وفقنا لما تحب وترضى اللهم وفقنا لما تحب وترضى واجعل آخرتنا خيرا من الأولى اللهم ثبتنا على الإيمان وأمتنا على الإيمان واحشرنا يوم القيامة مع الإيمان يا مقلب القلوب ثبت قلوبنا على دينك يا مصرف القلوب صرف قلوبنا على طاعتك اللهم اغفر لأمة سيدنا محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم اللهم ارحم أمة سيدنا محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم اللهم تجاوز عن أمة سيدنا محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم اللهم إنا نسلك من خير ما سألك منه نبيك وحبيبك سيدنا محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم ونعوذ بك من شر ما استعاذك منه نبيك وحبيبك سيدنا محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم أنت المستعان وعليك البلاغ ولا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله العلي العظيم وصلى الله تعالى على خير خلقه سيدنا محمد وآله وصحبه اجمعين الحمد لله